Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit BroadwayBullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, the live performances enjoy the from show. People vs. Mona have been edited out at the request of Actors' Equity. As a result, the chapters no longer work in this episode. Well, I Well, welcome back, everybody, to a brand new season of Broadway Bullet. This is volume 120, and uh, <laughs> I didn't have a, much of a break at all. did a whole lot of recording <laughs> over the thing. But we've got a fantastic episode here for you to kick things off in this new season. Whoever said summer was slow? This week we've got not one, not two... We've got three musicals who actually all came down to the studio to do an exclusive in-studio performance. I guess uh, this is kind of becoming the stop du jour for that stuff. So you've got lots of original material to hear in this show. we got seven songs. We're going to hear from the musicals People vs. Mona, which is composer Jim Wan's first show since uh, the big hit Pump Boys and Dinettes way back in the 80s. We've also got Idol, the musical. You've all been hearing about it, but have you heard it? You're going to hear an interview and songs from it this week. We've also got Mod. It's a musical. That's M-O-D. It's heading to uh, Edinburgh for their Fringe Festival, and it's playing at the East Edinburgh Festival at 59 East 59th. We're going to hear from uh, people involved with the play Two Thirds Home. And, of course, Marty Cooper is back. Uh, he's seen a bunch of stuff over the break, and guess what? He didn't like everything. Ah, I'll have to see what he didn't like. So uh, sit back there in your car, your computer desk chair, your subway, and uh, check out all the great new stuff. Thanks. Welcome back. On the boards. Well, even the news can't go uh, many days without reporting on American Idol, so it seemed inevitable that we are going to see a musical emerge around the sensation. And we do have uh, Idol the Musical. We've got Todd Ellis, who is the producer, and we've got John Balcourt, who's the composer, did the music and lyrics, and he performs in the show. How are you guys doing? Great. How are you Great. doing? <laughs> so, uh, you guys came down here from Syracuse with the show, right? Uh, basically, yeah. We uh, started the show in Syracuse. Uh, as the producer, I'm also the, uh, have the original concept for the show. Uh, and John uh, is from Syracuse. Bill Boland, who is the writer, is also from Syracuse. So after I came up with the concept, I hired these guys, put it in their hands, and they've given us an amazing musical. All right, so the concept sounds, i got to say, a little strange. A group of students, <laughs> yeah, it's a group of students from Steubenville, Ohio, who worship and have built a shrine to Clay Aiken. <laughs> uh, I mean, basically, it looks at how we worship idols in our society and the lengths we'll go to to worship them. I mean, it goes back to Elvis. It goes back to the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Grateful Dead. I mean, society has always worshipped those pop idols. And it's taking a look at that and uh, in a very funny uh, musical comedy parody way. Bye Bye Birdie. So, yeah, that, that brings a few things to mind. So that answers half of the question, but let's delve a little further. Let's address the obvious. I think, I think a lot of people out there think this sounds kind of silly. So it, it probably is a little silly. Sometimes you, know. you have to go from, through the silly 
to really get to the depth of the story. Because if you look at our society, and this was this show was written actually with social commentary uh, among it. I mean, really look at the growth of these characters, how much they feel they have to relate or to an idol to exist rather than being able to exist on their own volition. And through the process of the play, we see their growth and their realization that they can survive in society with or without idols. And uh, John... So what was your process with the with the writing? Were you in tune right away with the whole theme, or did you have to... Uh, it was a bit of a rough start. We had a couple song title ideas, topics thrown around. Uh, about three of them that we had in the original pool of titles stuck with us to the end of the show. And then once Bill came on board, we sort of veered off into a different direction than we had begun, and we have the show that we have now. Yeah, the three titles that exist are Burning Hunk of Clay... Uh, Simon Says, and Quaken for Aiken. <laughs> Another title, uh, which started out size 13 shoes, became the title Chip and Dale Days, which is about the basketball player who wants to be a dancer, who has size 13 shoes, obviously. <laughs> well, now, I also understand that the performers came from Syracuse with you. For the yeah, they're very talented. Uh, the performers have a ton of credits in Syracuse. They're very talented performers. Uh, they'll be performing uh, Idol the Musical here till the 29th of July. Uh, a cast that we now have in rehearsal uh, will take over the performances on August 1st. Uh, one of the cast members from Syracuse, Joe Walker, who's playing the role of J.D., uh, will stay with that cast. This, this original cast signed on uh, from July 5th to 29th. Yeah. And uh, we actually got a couple of men here to sing some numbers, and John, you're going to play with them, right? Yep. So why don't why don't we hear the first one first? You want right, to beautiful. introduce the singer and set this song up? Yes, this is Babs Rubenstein singing Prima Donna Fabula. She has the character of Adrian, who basically tries to foil all of the efforts of the rest of the cast and take all... Center stage was built for me Spotlight high on my marquee They can criticize from near and far But I'm the one who's gonna be a star Cameras flashing my cover story Billboards erected Don't have my game 
So what else you've been hiding in Syracuse? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Syracuse is a very talented town. If you go back to the early 1900s, 1910, there were actually 12 to 14 major performing arts centers uh, the old theaters, the old vaudeville theaters in Syracuse, of which unfortunately only one now still exists, the Landmark Theater. But the Schuberts actually produced in Syracuse back in the early days, and very, very early days of Broadway, a few shows uh, were born there. And now, 90 years later, <laughs> we decided to, uh, to birth another show to bring to New York City. Now, John, do you find it... Um I have written shows in the past, I used to act, never again, but I've always found it very distracting being in a show that I was writing, and I'm, I'm wondering how you're dealing with that, and, and, why, and why you're actually taking that on. Um, I don't find it distracting, I think it's kind of comforting to be a part of it. Um, I can relate to my character extremely well, so playing him in the show is not... And you play piano at the same time, so yeah. I guess, what is this character that allows you to play your own compositions? Um, his name is Connor. He is a homeschooled nerd for most of the show. I'm not saying I'm a nerd. But, um, I relate That's to That's okay, the... I will. <laughs> we all are. I guess so. Um, he is a musician, so that part of the role is very natural to me. He um, plays piano throughout the show a couple times, uh, two numbers specifically, Prima Donna Fabulous, which we just heard, and uh, near the end of the show, a song called Family of Misfits. He plays live on stage. So uh, have you performed in New York before this? I actually have been performing more in pit orchestras for shows uh, as of late, but um, prior to that, I haven't really been on the stage since eighth grade. <laughs> so this is quite a change. Well, trial by fire. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, I, I'm one thing that always pleases me is that does please me when I see an off-Broadway musical open for an extended run, or at least I assume this, is, this isn't a... We have nine weeks of the run. We're in the 45th Street Theater, which is a 99-seat house, whatever the official designation of that is. I don't know. <laughs> but now, are, are you shooting for this to be an open run? or is We are absolutely shooting for this to be an open run. Right now, we're booked in the 45th Street Theater through September 2nd. Uh, we are on a daily basis looking at plans to move this into a larger venue after that nine-week run. So what is it about everybody, all the producers that I talk to say that, you know, the challenges of producing off-Broadway are, there's not much financial reward there. It depends. Are, are, you finding, are, you, are you finding that the same way or are you actually think that there's a model that could work for you guys? We look at this, at this Idol the Musical as an investment. Uh, whether we break even, whether we make a lot of money in the off-Broadway run, it was not even really calculated into the formula. Uh, it's an excellent show. I, I'm a producer in Syracuse. I've produced under over 100 shows there. I'm also currently producing High School Musical in Syracuse, which has an August run. So I've kind of diversified and we're, was able to bring this into that whole package uh, as I was producing to know that I have a guaranteed income while supporting this, but we're having starting to have great crowds. Uh, we know that with the 99-seat theater, we're looking for most of our August production to be sold out or close to sold out. So, you know, it'll be a great investment, and we don't, you know, we think we'll do great with this. Now, 
I understand that this is kind of drawing a family, and, and marketing a musical is, as a family musical we all know means strictly for kids, but, no. when, but, when it, but it turns out that this is a musical that is for the family. It's a musical that so. can be seen by anyone age 10 to 88. The great thing about this is that anyone who can relate to any character in society, if you watch Dr. 90210, if you watch uh, Build Your New House, if you watch any of these shows, any reality TV, you can relate to this show. Because each of the nine characters, it's kind of like every man. Everyone should I be... watch no reality television. Oh, that's Except good. for Mythbusters. <laughs> <laughs> I like but, you know, anyone, anyone in whose society who wants to move beyond the life they currently have will relate to this show because it's about that the one of the song 15 minutes they're all looking for their 15 minutes of fame and anyone out there who has that i mean everyone who lines up for idol when they go to many different cities has that wish to be have that one chance of 15 minutes for fame and that really hits to the soul of many people uh, that want to move beyond the town they're living in or want to move from this job to the next there's always that hope it's a show about hope now, I, I bet you, you you have the concert for the show, and I can tell you just sat back quietly. <laughs> for the rest John of the... can comment on that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, no, you it's a great, we, have a great, we have a great team. Um, John as the composer, lyricist, and actor. Bill as the writer, lyricist. Dan Tersey as the director. Uh, and, and myself as the producer and the original concept uh, called Bipolar Productions. It's a new... Uh, production company we have formed for this project and many more that we already have in in the mind process as well as uh, I think some things are even starting to get on paper at mm -hmm. this point. Uh, we're looking at a long-term thing here because we work, the four of us work great together, no ego associated within each of our parts. We're very willing to listen to each other. All right, well, let's, let's hear one more song before we wrap up. I know you've got a couple other people here ready and eager to perform. Absolutely. This is Roy George, Jenny Reverso, and Courtney Ellis singing Simon Says. This is, they're basically, everything seems to have broken down around them. They've, they wanted this shot, and it's been taken away from them. And this song expresses their anger with that and with society and with everyone who always tries to put you down when you're trying for your 15 minutes of fame. Six-note range, topped off with two left feet. But closer to a paraplegic! Yeah! Simon says we suck. We strangled harmony with our voices. You may have actually made Helen Keller go deaf. With being hit by a semi-truck. Simon, you don't leave us many choices. So you call for someone to bring back a rifle and shoot you in the head while we dance. You Simon says we suck, we strangled harmony with our voices. Are you singing a song to me or killing a deer? Like being hit by a semi-truck. Simon, you don't leave us many choices. Like a cyanide pill, our voices can kill. Taken with a shot of Drano. Throw some rat poison in there, you really don't have a prayer because... Simon says we suck. Simon says we suck. Simon, Simon says we suck. 
Simon says we suck. Simon, 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 from all those great shows that are showing, uh, they can go to www.smartticks.com, or there are some seats still available if they walk up. Wednesdays, Saturdays, and Sundays, 3.15 and 8.15, and Thursdays and Fridays at 8.15. It's an amazing show. Tons of laughs throughout the show. Burnin' Hunk of Clay, that, that is the song. I, I mean, they are rolling to that song. It is amazing. Basically, Burnin' Hunk of Clay, one of the characters, has sculpted a clay bust of clay and sings her love song to that. <laughs> All right. Well, nutty, silly, and you know, definitely current and timely. I uh, thank you guys so much for coming down and, and talking with us and bringing the crew down to perform the songs. It was it was a blast having you here. Beautiful. Thank you thank so you. much. Thanks. The call board. All right, I want to let everybody know that my business partner, David, uh, David Shapiro, is my uh, co-owner of Broadway Bullet, though he's pretty silent about it. He is also a real estate agent, so if you're in New York, moving to New York, looking to buy or rent New York City apartments, you can give him a buzz, 646-920-3402. If you tell him that uh, you came from Broadway Bullet, he'll do everything possible to get you the best deal there is, so... Remember, call Dave, NYC Apartments, 646-920-3402. Also, we got a lot going on with the Midtown International Theater Festival. We've got our own DIY series podcast promoting that. It's going to continue later. It's a little bit more geared towards the nuts and bolts of, uh, you know, getting things up yourself and not waiting for everybody to uh, make your break for you. So you can find that at broadwaybullet.com slash DIY. And you can find out more about the Midtown International Theater Festival, which runs until August 5th at www.midtownfestival.org. A lot going on this summer. Every Thursday in Bryant Park, stars from your favorite musicals come out and sing. Coming up on... Today, if you're <laughs> really quick, is Avenue Q, Rent, Tarzan, The Drowsy Chaperone, and The Phantom of the Opera. Uh, and it's going to be hosted by Christine Nagy. And next Thursday, on the 26th, is going to be Curtains, Spamalot, Stomp, The Lion King, and Xanadu. And will be hosted by Karen Carson. Next week, a whole slew of new people join a chorus line. Uh, check out their website for who. Ashley Spencer of You're the One That I Want fame joins the cast of Hairspray. And Grease begins previews on July 24th. And High School Musical invades uh, uh, tours Chicago. Well, go a couple weeks and the announcements just pile up, including our nymph that's the New York Musical Theater Festival. Coverage is beginning, can you believe it? August 23rd in Volume 125. We're going to have eight episodes dedicated to the festival with tons of original performances and interviews. And, oh, if you're a fan of musical theater, uh, you know, you don't want to miss out on it. And um, if you're around New York or you're coming to New York, we're going to be starting a contest next week. We're going to be giving out a gold membership package. And we're calling the contest Nymphomaniacs. So uh, tune in next week to find out what you need to do to win. Wow, I think I got through all of them. <laughs> Let's get back to the program. On the boards.
Pump Boys and Dinettes is one of my favorite cast albums ever, and it is still my uh, misfortune that I have not caught a live performance of the show, but the soundtrack is indelibly etched in my head, and I'm feeling very excited that the composer of that show, Jim Wan, is here to talk about and have cast members perform songs from his first show since then, People vs. Mona, and he's joined in the studio with producer and director Kate Middleton. How are you two doing? Great. Feeling good. <laughs> so just last night as we talked, you just uh, had your first preview, and I understand it went really well. It did. It started out well and just kept getting better as it went along. Uh, really we, exciting. We had a great house and a lot of friends and family, and everybody just had a ball, and it was so nice to finally have the actors get response back from someone other than us. <laughs> so... What, it's been like over 20 years, hasn't it, Jim? Yeah, amazingly enough, it has. Uh, so, where, what's the gap here in <laughs> the writing? Well, I started playing with a band, uh, and we wrote a musical together called King Mackerel and the Blues Are Running, Songs and Stories of the Carolina Coast. And we actually played New York a couple of times. We played the West Bank Downstairs Theater and the Bottom Line and uh, ran for, you know, a month and a half until the money ran out. Whoever had the money, it ran out went to the Kennedy Center and all around the South, and then we kind of got tired of doing that musical and reinvented ourselves as the fictitious band from the show, the Coastal Cohorts. So now, uh, for the last 20 years, we've been doing uh, benefits for environmental, not-for-profits, uh, cultural organizations, uh, you know, helping folks to raise money to keep the waters clean, to keep theaters open and stuff like that. But I have been writing, too, as <laughs> I've gone along. And, Kate, what got you involved with this show? Uh, Ground Up has been in New York, I guess, for about two years at this point. And last year we did the New York revival of Pump Boys and Jim came well, I didn't even hear about it. Like, <laughs> oh, you oh, should have God. seen it. It was fantastic. <laughs> it, it had all of the spirit and soul of the original. It was just like a trip back in time for me. It was in a, We used Manhattan Theater Source uh, downtown for most of our shows. Uh, People vs. Mona is at the Abingdon, but Manhattan Theater Source is a very small space, and so it really allowed the very intimate setting that that show needs so that everybody can make contact with everybody in the audience. It was, it was a lot of fun. But Jim came down and um, just had a blast and then I heard about this show through the grapevine after that. Now even though um, Pump Boys and Dinettes was kind of a unique theatrical experience although I missed it from when I I've read the script I've read the thing over and over it's it's a different sort of show but I understand mm -hmm. that this is a little bit more of a a little more traditional book musical from what I can tell. It is. Uh, it takes some of that small town side of the road Pump Boys feeling and uh, puts a a real story with it. It's a it's a mystery, so there's a mystery plot. It's a courtroom setting, so uh, we had to find ways to musicalize things that are done in a courtroom. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Stuff like that. <laughs> uh, the judge sings, everybody sings. And there's also a love story. Uh, there's a love triangle. There's a fate of a small town hanging on the verdict. So, yeah, in terms of Pump Boys, uh, which was more of a day in the life uh, of these characters by the side of the road, the gas station guys and waitresses, this has um, lots of elements of a traditional book musical story that we weaved in. You're really part of the Nashville music scene too, right? You know I'm not. You're not? I, I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Nashville was just up the road. And I used to go up there with my folks sometimes. And then I would go there from time to time. Pump Boys had a real success there. And um, I went there and met a lot of people around that time. 
And I thought about getting into country music after that. And um, a friend in the business said, Jim, you know, I kind of look at you and don't see somebody who really wants to spend 250 days a year out on the road. And I said, you know, you're right. So I kind of waved goodbye to Nashville and uh, came on back to New York. <laughs> you know, not only uh, do I enjoy listening to Pump Boys, but for a year I DJed at a country bar in Montana. No kidding. And, and that CD was actually my secret weapon. Yeah. I always, because it had some great foxtrots and different things yeah. that, that the dancers yeah. always wanted. And they'd always be like, what was that? God, what a great story. <laughs> Well, you would enjoy the Frog Pad, the uh, the heart of Tippo, because it's one of those kinds of places where someone like you will play something unexpected and everybody will love it and get into it. <laughs> you know, I've always wondered why country music, I mean, I, I listen to everything, you know, and country music is already so close to musical theater. I mean, Nashville songwriters tell stories, they bring in character, they they go outside a lot of the boundaries, and their songwriting chops are really tight, and it's... It's always been a bit of a puzzler to me why more of them don't get into musical theater. What has you balanced playing live, even if you're not in the natural country scene of music? What have been the differences for you between the theater world and the traditional music world? I think the storytelling aspect is what the worlds have in common. And I grew up listening to folk singers and uh, writers like Woody Guthrie, people who could tell a whole story in one three- or four-minute song. And that's the way the English and Scottish traditional popular ballads were, the ones that came over from the British Isles and got transformed in the Appalachians. And a lot of that traditional music that you still hear traditionalists play today, you know, goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. And that's the only way they had to tell a story was through song or just oral history. Um, musical theater's different, and my learning curve along the way has been not to write 16 songs and have each one of them tell a complete story. Pump Boy sort of does that because um, it is a day in the life and you can it's, it functions like a review. But in a book musical, you have to write songs that just get you from one place to the next. You don't want to tell a complete story necessarily. You want to just tell the part of the story that needs to be told right then. So I think a musical as a whole, a book musical, really amounts to one big storytelling song with lots of different parts. Well, this is great. Before we continue, maybe we should... Uh have that first performance here in the studio. Do you want to set up and, and set up the song and introduce who's performing this? Well, the show begins very casually. Um, the narrator, Jim, Jim Summerford, a local lawyer, is standing in the frog pad, which is the place where everybody gathers in Tippo. It's kind of their cheers, if you will. It's kind of southeast Georgia cheers. And he starts to tell the story of how the town uh, has fallen on hard times and they need to do something to bring their town back. They love the place, they love the frog pad, but they don't have any um, way to express their cultural heritage and get tourists to come in and pay them money for it. So they're on the verge of trying to figure this out um, and that's the way the show begins. And our wonderful actor is Richard Bender. And singing backup is... Marianne Torres, who is playing our Mona. Tempo has been edited out of this program at the request of Actors' Equity. Kate, you are balancing <laughs> producing and directing this show. Yes, I am. And how is that? <laughs> it's, it's going beautifully, actually. We, I think that we've made an incredible team together. We've been what on... happens when the director wants to spend more than the producer will let her? <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a big conflict of interest there. <laughs> um, we, I'm, I'm the artistic director for Ground Up Productions. I'm also in some of the productions. I haven't been in any for, I guess, about a year at this point. But um, this was a project that 
Uh, we had a lot of people on board for from the beginning. We uh, did the reading in November last year. And our musical director, Rob Mikulski, was on board then, and Jim and Patricia were on board. Um, our resident director, and uh, she's a partial producer of Ground Up Productions, Laura Stanley, was on board. We've had a lot of people on board this project, and it was just really important that we had this really great family feel because it's what the story is about. And so we all just, you know, tried to create this atmosphere of, of warmth and fun because it's really where this show needs to grow from. So we've all been on board, and it's just been a, a really great, great experience. So why? Why? This is only running like three weeks. It is. It's. It's actually just running for three and a half weeks. Okay. But we, um, we have very high hopes for it. It's. It's the kind of thing that once people realize yeah. what it is, uh, we think, we think a lot of people will jump on board. It's something really special. All right. So uh, before we continue, we got another song from the show. Do you want to set this one up? Sure. Um, this is sung by Marianne Torres, who is playing Armona. Um, this takes place in Act 1 when she has had her first day in court, and then she's taken back to her jail cell. And it's just a late, hot summer night in Tippo. And uh, she is singing about how she has a new love and how she's locked up in jail. <laughs> Lockdown Blues has been edited out of this program at the request of Actors' Equity. All right, so Jim... The, the, now that you're back and you've done another musical, uh, is this your last one, or oh, definitely or is it going to be another twenty years? <laughs> no, I have a, I have a new musical in the works that's very different from this one. It's a more serious musical, albeit with uh, certainly um, moments of humor, but it's based on a true life story. John Wesley Powell, the explorer who led a group of men down the Colorado River in 1869 to try to find a passage into the Grand Canyon which at that time was the last unmapped portion of the United States. And all of these men were Civil War veterans, and they're all bearing, you know, physical and emotional wounds of the war. So that kind of gets played out on the journey on the river. And Powell's wife was a remarkable woman. Uh, she figures prominently in the story. She was the first woman to ever climb Pikes Peak. Uh, she was a, an explorer in her own right. And during his um, trip down the river, she's spending time in Washington lobbying as a kind of early environmentalist for um, sense and sensibility in the exploration of the West. There was a theory going around back then called rain follows the plow. In other words, all the deserts of the West would yield moisture if you only plowed them. The moisture would rise, rain clouds would form, rain would fall, and the deserts would become oases. That was actually talked seriously about in the U.S. <laughs> Congress. <laughs> so, you know, there are these parallel journeys and, uh, and issues about uh, men coming home from the war, uh, what they go through when they come home from a war, and, and uh, environmental issues, um, you know, both of which have kind of taken center stage in our news recently. So uh, I'm writing this with Bill Hauptman, who wrote the book for Big River, the Huckleberry Finn musical. Another one of my favorites, yes. Uh, me too. I me had Daniel too. Jenkins on a little bit ago. That was fun. Dan Jenkins, uh, Roger Miller's score, fantastic. So, you know, we're, we're you know, hoping to do a reading, uh, even if it's a living room reading of that, uh, sometime soon. We're, you know, maybe one song away from having that one. <laughs> so back with uh, People versus Mona here. Yeah. Um, and uh, what are the dates they can catch this and all this this stuff? Last night was our first preview, which was uh, July 12th, and it runs through August 4th at the Abingdon Theater, which is at 312 West 36th Street, and there is no Monday show. 
uh, shows are all at 8.30. There's a 2.30 Sunday matinee, and for some strange reason, there is no show on Tuesday the 17th. <laughs> <laughs> so it runs for the next, uh, I guess, about three weeks. And, uh... Jim, I'm wondering, I know you, you play a little bit and you sing. I'm wondering if I can possibly put you on the spot in addition to the cast, get you to maybe perform a number from this. Oh, sure. Um, I'd be happy to. What would you like to perform? From the People versus Mona? Well, Lockdown Blues has already been sung. Tip and better than I could sing it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... Can I borrow a guitar from you? Yes. It looks so. like you've got a couple up on yep, the wall. Let me get that. This is the very last song in the People vs. Mona. The trial is over, and uh, the people of Tippo, Georgia, have embarked on a new cultural tourism, heritage, folk, blues, our history campaign to get people to come to Tippo, spend money, and enliven their town. And so that's this song kind of plays out at the end of the show with the bows and, and stuff like that. And some of the items in it are clues in the show, so if they don't make any sense, that's what <laughs> Come on down to Tipple Town, make the murder tour, see the studio at Star, the after-death guitar, and Mona May's glitter signature. The pink Cadillac is mounted on the roof of the Upalar Pew School of Law. Stay with Mr. Patel at the Santa Claus Motel. Go home and tell them all what you saw. Tippo Town, come on down. Scene of the crime, have yourself a large time. Don't you know, all roads lead to Tippo. Come on down, come on down. Come on down to Tippo. All right, yeah, you definitely made me very happy there. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> Encore, private performance here. Fantastic. Do you so need best... it again for safety or anything? Uh, you, you got it? Yeah, I got it. It sounded great. <laughs> okay, good. And best of luck with the show. Thank, Thank you Thank so you. much. Two-Thirds Home is being produced by the Broken Watch Theatre Company. And with us today, we have the writer of Two-Thirds Home, as well as the artistic director of Broken Watch, Drew DeCorletto. Is that right? All right, how are you guys doing? Great, thank you, Michael. How are you? Good. You want to introduce yourself so the listeners can identify your voices there? Yes, I am Drew DeCorletto, and I am the artistic director of Broken Watch Theatre Company and the producers of Two-Thirds Home. And I'm Patrick Lillis, the writer of Two-Thirds Home. So first off, Patrick, I guess, tell us a little bit about what Two-Thirds Home is about. Okay. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's about two brothers coming home uh, after their mother's funeral and coming in to theoretically clean up their childhood and their, and their house, and, to conf and they end up confronting their mother's girlfriend, a uh, lover of 16 years. And what it's about is them come to terms with each other because of the secrets that lie in their family and the relationship and trying to see if they can find out who they are without their mother. Uh, and and what, I meant, what I mean by that is that there was a secrets in this relationship that in all three of them have about the mom that really made the relationship specific uh, between the mom and each person. And uh, in the loss of this character, the Anne, uh, who's the mother's name, and uh, to the lover and to the two sons. And in her absence, I don't think the three people know how they relate to one another. So 
Hopefully that's what it's about. We'll see. Well, I understand this is a little bit of a switch for you, typically, is in your career. It is. It's actually my first original full play. I've been directing um, for 15 years, and uh, and it's uh, it's exciting. I, I was prompted. I, w I was uh, I'm a member of the Labyrinth Theater Company, and I was up there as a director, and I I watched. Uh, we the company generates new work on the summer intensive. We go away for a month and uh, or two weeks. Sorry, during the month of August and. And I was watching a playwright I was working with just trying to write this play, and he was having such difficulty doing it, not because it's, first of all, it's hard to write a play, as I'm learning even more so about it, writing one, but uh, but he was writing this personal story, and uh, and I thought, you know, I have this play inside me that I tried to write uh, 17 years ago, and when I watched him struggle, I said, oh, I should try it. And, uh, and then I did, and then through the lab's support, I read it, and then eventually got it to Drew. Which, which I say, yeah, I was going to say, Drew, so how did this, this show come to the attention of Broken Watch? Well, um, I like to believe that the only reason why good scripts are being done elsewhere is because I pass them up. Um, <laughs> I do, I, I, Patrick was directing uh, one of our readings for our reading series we have uh, for, through the Broken Workshops, um, in which I do, um, it's not your typical stage reading series, uh, I actually... Uh, uh, make the director and the actors and the playwrights sit in uh, a rehearsal room for a week and crack the play and then put it up in front of an audience. Um, so then it actually gives the play a chance to be seen and to be uh, heard, you know, not just by actors that have just gotten the script that afternoon and are reading it in front of an audience that night. I don't think that's fair to the playwright or the play. Um, so Patrick actually directed um, a play for us for that series. And afterward, he said to me, he said, Drew, I think that you would like um, my play. And he says it kind of fits, like, the, everything that you're talking about, what you expect in a play, you know, what you're about, what the company is about. And I said, sure, I'll give it a read. And I gave it a read, and I called him immediately, and I said, this is next up on our uh, reading series. And it went well. We had good responses from the audience. Um, I love the play. I personally connect the play, but I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just me personally. I, I wanted to make sure that the play actually fit in uh, with Broken Watch and which, with, uh, with what we uh, want to do and, um, and, of course, the audience. And after the stage reading, I said, yeah, this is going to go into our summer slot. So I understand with Broken Watch that you, you do some full mountings and then you also do like a couple workshop mountings mm -hmm. a year and stuff. So how does that, how does that all fit in your mission? Um, we we like to uh, we do plays by the underserved and undervalued playwright and um, um, which ones aren't there? <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> well, that's yeah. Okay, so the broadness but, of our mission is is put into. Okay, so Neil plus, Simon isn't getting. <laughs> Neil Simon is not going to do a show at Broken Watch Theater Company now. But it's a. Uh, the one thing that's interesting, the under, I don't, I, I don't know. Terrence McNally, no. Probably not. Probably doesn't need the broken watch home because he's across, you know. But uh, I don't know how that fits in. But I do feel like sort of the, uh, I don't know that answer. But it is nice to know that there's like, sort of this place that's looking for good new plays that the writers aren't necessarily established and haven't had a breakout. Like, uh, again, I'm going to say, you know, I'm a member of the Labyrinth, and we're sort of homegrown. So, like, Stephen Adley-Giergis was an actor, and now he's a known playwright. But he started there, but it was like they had a home. And the interesting thing about Broken Watch, to me, uh, is that the writers aren't in the company. You know, they're not, you're actually actively seeking out the script that, 
like, well, why did why didn't somebody pick this up? This is a good. Mm-hmm. This is good. And uh, and that development process. I mean, it's funny. I want to put a plug to like the theater community or whatever. But that development process was fantastic to have a week of of not let's do a cold reading for three hours and we're going to judge your play because because uh, it it wasn't about being judged. I felt in the week that we worked on the play. Uh, that I was learning about the play. Like if if nothing had happened, if it didn't, if my play didn't get produced, I would have walked away feeling like I had learned a lot about my play. So it was really, I felt, you know, the one thing about undervalued <clears throat> that I thought was really when you said it, I went, wow, yeah, I feel really valued as a writer, which is good because because I don't think that's always the feeling of a writer. And, and it's also not <laughs> limited to the uh, the playwright. It's also the undervalued and underserved plays. So it can be, um, for instance. Uh, like uh, Michael Weller, who is on our board of directors, if he came to me with a play, I would absolutely look at it and read it and, and consider it for a Broken Watch production um, because I do feel that, you know, it, if it's our mission. I mean, dramaturgically sound material is a big part of our mission as well. So um, I, I, I don't think it just limits to underserved and undervalued playwrights. I think it's underserved and undervalued plays as well. Now, uh, so when you look for dramaturgically sound material, mm-hmm. which I, I think is very admirable, uh, I think is a very admirable quality. Yes. You know, because I've I talked to so many companies who say they're looking for the bad material. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> I'm looking for the one that's but, horrible, and we're going to do it. <laughs> but what what is your uh, how, what is your process for reading a play? Because I mean, some people know how to read plays, and some people don't. Yeah, I can't I can't tell you that because um, it's like how do you. Like I was talking to a fellow actor the other day, and I said, you know, uh, when I'm directing, you know, you can see something, and you can see if it's good or if it's bad, and I can't tell you how I know. I just know that that's bad. Um, and what a lot of people, when I was in college, learning about directing and learning about acting, and and I said this, the, I, as soon as I graduated college, I got about three or four years of directing in me, and I said, as soon as you come to terms with the fact that there is bad acting, because everybody's like, it's so subjective. Acting is so subjective. You can't really consider that bad. No, it's bad. Paris Hilton still hasn't come to terms with that. Right, exactly. <laughs> and and <laughs> it's, it's like... As soon as you you either know it's bad or you don't, and there's a lot of people out there that that do, you know, think that something's really good, and it, to you and I, it's bad. And how do you, how do you, you know, say well, what makes me better than everybody else? I don't know. I just know that when I'm reading a script, I know if it's good, and if it's good, I'm gonna do it. Um, and, and my play's good. And his play is his so, play's really good. Um, and you just don't know. I don't know that you can actually, I could say, well, because he uses five ands, three buts, and he doesn't use the F word. Oh, it's a great play. I don't know. I don't know how to, how I determine it. Is it easy for it. you to picture the show in action when you're reading? Yes. Yeah. I, I, the first read I do, I just read and I say, what, what does the story do for me? Is this something that I even want to waste my time visualizing? You know, does the, does the storyline, and that's when all these playwrights, and that's, it's horrible that when playwrights send me stuff, they send me like a, a, a paragraph synopsis of the play. And it automatically puts them either in front or behind the eight ball, because either I like that paragraph or I don't like it, I'm not going to give the play a chance. Um, 
you know, you give me a synopsis for American Buffalo by uh, David Mamet, and uh, you know, in two two sentences, I probably wouldn't be interested in reading anything it. by David Mamet. <laughs> right. Summarize, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh? like you know, how do you determine that? So it's a nickel. I, <laughs> Broken Watch is very fortunate to have Michael Weller in its corner. A bunch of guys grumbling about sales. Yeah, <laughs> and one guy never shows up. <laughs> But my, we, we, like I said, we were very fortunate to have Michael Weller in our corner because Michael actually reads through a lot of bad scripts for me. He doesn't read them, but he sends me scripts, and he tells me, you got to look at this, you have to look at that, and I do. And those are the scripts that I read. So I'm already ahead of the game by getting scripts hand-delivered to me as opposed to... I do have stacks of scripts that are from in the mail, and I do get the agents calling me saying, have you read my client's script yet? And I'm like, you know, I have not gotten to it because my stack's like this, and then my Michael Weller stack's like this, and my friend's stack is like this, and my friends, and those come first. Now, this show's playing from the 21st of July through the 12th of August, right? Yes. How difficult of a time as a producer is this... Right now, it seems like every play that's getting mounted is in a festival. It is. <laughs> and how, how do you stand out from that, or how do you avoid the confusion of being <laughs> festivalized? I don't know how you stand out from that, and I'll let you answer that, but the one thing I'm going to say is, because I directed in the Fringe uh, the past four years, and it's nice to do a play in the summer that you rehearse a real chunk of time, and that you're set. We have a play takes place in a house. And our set designer made the place look fantastic, and I'm thrilled. You don't have to bring it off. You don't have to take it down. (laughs) (laughs) Like it looks like somebody's lived there for 30 years, and it's uh, it's uh, it's it's a thrill because usually that's exactly it. You're doing a play in the summer. You're like, okay, it's a house. So what do you really need? Couch. couch. All right, we're done. Can you do that with a box? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty yeah. much. You know, that's it. You know, you start. I'm, I'm, I'm. No, no kidding. I did two shows in the Fringe, and and where the set was a chair. You know, so this is it. That, that's one way. Is it really is a product? It's a real production, and it's great. So. Yeah, and and the the Fringe thing. How we do avoid it is that um, we go up and close before the Fringe begins. I mean, we got to offer. We, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's it's tough because as a producer, I know what it's I know what it's like. You know, I I take a risk by producing original work um, by unknown playwrights. You know, and unknown, like like what are you doing? If I said, oh, we're doing if it's Christmas time, oh, we're doing the Grinch. Oh, I'm there. You know, give me twenty tickets. If I say, oh yeah, we're doing you know Two Thirds Home by Patrick Lillis. What's that? And then you have to explain the play. Yeah, and if you don't explain it properly, they're not going to come. So we take a risk anyway. And so I understand what it's like for for producers to say, you know, damn it, we need to produce Shrek or we need to produce something because the p- wedding singer, because they're going to get people in. It's hard for us. I mean, we lose money every show and we're only putting up, you know, not that much money as, as they're putting up. And it, so I see both sides of the coin and I think that it's, it's I do believe it is the job of the producer to change the audience um, expectancy, if you will. You know, it, the producers are the ones that produce the work and if they only produce you know, a certain type of audience is going to come see it no matter what because it's the only thing offered to them. If you're offering them Shrek and you're offering them these other things, then they're going to say, I'm not going to go see this show because I'm going to go see something I'm familiar with. Well, what if we change the audience's perspective and say, you know what, theater is something you're going to go and and you're, you might not know what the show is, you might not know, you know, who the people are in it, but you're going to see a good show. It, that is a culture that is not going to exist as long as rents are going up, as long as you know salaries are going up and everything. And it's just it's such a difficult thing. I feel that we do our small part at the bottom, 
But even it's difficult for us. I have this thing that cracks, I, I, it cracks me up because I'm going, I don't know what time of year if it matters when you do the play because I used to joke as a director when I, I, I tried to get certain artistic directors to come see my work and I would be like, you know, I could do the play in their living room. And they'd go out to dinner that night. So I can't always control. So I'm hoping, that, you know, I'm hoping the play is, uh, I, I, the play is good. The production's good. So I'm hoping that people want to come. But the thing about the festivals is key. And, you know, it's definitely not competing with the big Broadway. It's a difference to realistic drama, which uh, there aren't very many at the moment playing. And it's, and, and, we, and it's a permanency of it. And we also, you know, the last, you know, it's funny in my head. I can't not say, like, the one good thing is if somebody's not working, like our three actors, uh, uh, and our director, and they're available this time of year, and they're in town. Then we're, then it's great because you know, like, wow, we've got you know, the, if they're if they weren't out of town, they'd rather do this than be in a festival. You know, I think uh, I would not because it's my, not because it's my play, but you'd rather be in a rehearsal room, taken care of, <laughs> not having to put the living room as a box. You know, and it's and it's they're fantastic. So, but uh, all right. So when and where can people go to get tickets to? To see two thirds home. Tickets are available at theatermania.com um, through Ovation Ticks, and all you do is just go to theatermania.com and to look uh, New York shows two thirds home, and we're at the Michael Weller Theater, which is located at three eleven West Forty Third Street on the sixth floor. Previews begin on the twenty first. Um, we are offering student discounts for the 21st, 22nd, 25th, and 26th of $10 for a student ticket. So if you are a student and you are in town, $10, you can see a play. Transformers is like ten fifty. dollars so. Yeah, so we're, we're good. That. We're better. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for coming down and chatting with us. Thank thanks, you, Michael. Michael. Okay. On the positive side. Hey, this is Marty Cooper once again. On the positive side, uh, yeah, we're back. I did a few interesting things during the hiatus. First of all, I saw what I thought was a wonderful show that I really hope it makes it to Broadway and uh, and it's a success on Broadway. Uh, Michael Riedel, there's one for you again, uh, saying that uh, if it didn't sell out 429 seats, it won't sell 1,400 seats. But the night I was there, it was sold out. And uh, someone I know just tried to go, and they couldn't get in easily. They had to wait for a cancellation. And I'm talking about In the Heights, which uh, uh, just closed off-Broadway last week. Uh, We had a ball. I loved everybody in the show. The composer, Lin-Manuel Miranda, uh, I think does a great job. He wraps everything throughout the show. The one who plays his his little cousin, uh, Robin de Jesus, who you might remember from uh, the movie Camp, was fantastic. Uh, Priscilla Lopez, a Broadway legend from A Chorus Line and other things. Uh, Great is one of the older people. Uh, Mandy Gonzalez, fantastic. But the big revelation was uh, a lady named Alga Moritz. Uh, You might have seen her last year in Mamma Mia. Uh, She's done Les Mis. She's played Madame T in Les Mis. Uh, She played an older woman, in most fantastic and startling manner. She has a number in the first act that just blows you away totally. And when you see pictures of this woman, you can't believe that it's the same person. I saw her last year as, as one of Donna Sheridan's friends in, in Mamma Mia, and uh, you'd never think uh, that they did so much with makeup. A couple of other things. I was sad to see the closing of Tarzan. I went to one of the last shows, actually. I think it was July 4th. Loved it. 
uh, I don't understand Disney's point of view, especially the last few weeks it sold out totally. And all we, we can sit is uh, way up in the balcony someplace. But we went anyway and we had a good time. I just said, I'm just a sucker for this stuff. You know, uh, some people call me an effects whore, uh, which I probably am. But uh, I thought it was great and I thought it was a mistake closing it down. Actually, I think it's a mistake closing down Beauty and the Beast. Uh, I think it still has a life, you know, but uh, in actuality, we're kind of running out of theaters. So uh, something has to close before they put something else in. Speaking of In the Heights, I don't, uh, they're talking about putting it in the Richard Rogers Theater where, where Tarzan was. I don't think that's a good space for that show. I really don't. I would much rather go with someplace like the Music Box, which has a uh, wider proscenium and is a smaller theater. I think it would work better there. So if the producers are listening, you might think about it. Speaking of the music box, I saw a play there last week about two retired tennis players, and they're at the Tennis Open, and they're about to be honored. And they are reflecting on their long lives, wonderfully played by uh, Angela Lansbury and, and Ma Ma Marion Seldes. Uh, they're fantastic. The play, not so fantastic. Uh, I'm usually on the positive side, but... For a good part of the afternoon, I was kind of bored. And they added three characters to the play that they needn't have added. I would have much rather have the two women just reflect on their lives for the hour and a half. It was an hour and a half, no intermission, short and sweet, and thank God it was short. It certainly would have been a good substitute for Ambien. Uh, what else did I do? Uh, well, this week I'm um, in total heaven. I'm seeing... Uh, Miss Lapone playing uh, uh, Mama Rose on, on Friday night. We have friends in from Florida, and Thursday we're doing yet another visit to Les Mis. And on Sunday afternoon, speaking of that, uh, I'm going to see something I w I'd been making fun of, as probably a lot of people have. Uh, it was supposed to be a not-since-carry moment, uh, but surprisingly, uh, this little show, Xanadu, got for the most part, great reviews. I don't know if anybody caught The New Yorker, but they were literally bubbling over the show. A classic as far as they were concerned. You know, I'm looking forward to seeing it, looking forward to, uh, to the new Broadway season. Actually, it started already with the said Xanadu. And uh, I think I made a joke when we were talking of the Tonys saying that, uh, of course, next year's Tonys will be, will be dominated by Xanadu. Uh, the way some of the people were talking, uh, it could possibly. Uh, I'm not sure of that, but... Uh, oh, also, I'm waiting with bated breath for Greece. I'm actually looking forward to this production because, uh, because the, the last incarnation of Greece on Broadway was simply awful, and I saw it a few times. The only reason why I saw it a few times because I always knew somebody doing it, and uh, I wanted to kick myself every time... I wasted two and a half hours of my life watching this horrific production, especially the first couple of times I saw it with Rosie O'Donnell. Uh, simply awful. In any case, if you have any opinions on, uh, on my, uh, my meanderings today or any suggestions, yeah, you can email me at uh, broadwaymarty at aol.com. So once again, this is Marty Cooper. Stay on the positive side. On the positive side is brought to you by The Colony, online at colonymusic.com or in the heart of the theater district at 49th and Broadway. You can always say, I found it at The Colony. So uh, who wants to place bets that the closest Marty's gotten to in the Heights is the musical? <laughs>
Ah, just giving him shit. Okay, we're back with uh, our last show. This is another musical for you. Enjoy. On the boards. Currently running over at 59 East 59th Street is a small little festival called East Edinburgh, filled with some shows that are heading from New York City all the way over to Edinburgh, England, to perform there. So... If you're in Edinburgh, you can catch this show, and if you're in New York, and we've got, representing that whole thing, we've got Maud, and uh, with us is actor Austin Wages and writer-producer Paul Andrew Perez. How are you guys doing? Great. Doing good. Thanks for having us. <laughs> I'm glad you got here, and you're going to do some songs for us here in the studio as well. Absolutely. First off, I guess, what is Maud about? Oh my gosh. Uh, Maud is really, uh, it's set in 1964, and it's about um, what happened when the Beatles first came to America. Uh, it's dealing with these small group of kids that are based in Amherst, Massachusetts. And this particular, the the character that Austin is portraying, Rory, doesn't not doesn't just want to be like them. He actually wants to be the fifth Beatle. And then uh, through a course of events uh, during the play, he actually gets a chance. Um, who wins a ticket to go meet them? And his fantasies start. All his fantasies start coming to life. And then slowly, they all start getting stripped away. And then he has to face his own reality. And then, uh, in the end, it's more about learning to be himself. So that's what the message is about. But it's all set in, in, in the flavor of 1964, which is cool because the music is all original, but it's all like two-minute songs and very inspired by the music of that era, which is I love. So that's kind of cool. Hey, well, you guys want to start off by performing the, a song from the show? Yeah. Sure, yeah. Rock. So you need to set this one up at all? Uh, this, the first one is Look at How She Walks. Why don't you look, tell them? Look at How She Walks. Um, so it's the, I think it's the second number in the show, and it's just, uh, it sort of introduces my character's complete um, uh, worship of a girl <laughs> named Haley. Yeah, yeah, worship. It is worship, especially at that age. Um, and it's just, uh, the song is just about, just about, you know, how great she is and and uh, the fact that she's so great makes me feel a little, a little less than, um, a little less than human at times. <laughs> and who do we got joining you on background vocals here? Uh, we have our incredible Craig, Craig Fogel, who's uh, in the show. He plays West. He plays West. He's one of his friends. All right, and we love Craig. Let's take a listen. Look at how she walks. Oh. Look at how she walks. Look at how she walks, everybody talks, but she never walks to me. Look at how she smiles, look at how she smiles, look at how she smiles, lighting up for miles, but she never smiles at me. Does she feel me? Is she sensing my groove? I'll approach her, but I can't seem to move. The same thing every day. She never looks his way. I need a little time, then she'll see that I'm the guy for her. She's the girl I love. She's the girl I love She's the girl I love Push has come to shove Got to get her loving me Got to get her loving me She will fall in love with me 
Austin, you got a, a pretty like pop rock voice going there. Not, yeah, yeah. You don't sound like a theater person <laughs> trying to do pop. Um, right, exactly. That's, that's uh, so. Are you are you a theater person trying to do pop or? I'm uh, <laughs> mainly. Uh, no, I'm definitely not. I'm definitely not. I uh, I've been playing guitar and and writing songs and singing since I was eleven. 11 and 12, and uh, never really, I mean, I've done a couple of musicals, but they were also sort of rock musicals. They weren't the, the, the standard, you know, show tunes. So, uh, no, this is, this is my style of music, for sure. So how did you find the show? How the two of you, did you just audition? Or? Audition. Yeah. Audition, and he was just, like, perfect for what we were looking for, so we were really thrilled to get him. So it's been a great... Yeah, I just brought in a guitar and played uh, played some Beatles songs for the audition and sang them. Actually, the thing that uh, stitched it for us is the reader that he actually made her blush. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> hey, well, you know. The guitar helps. Yeah, the guitar does help, man. The, 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 that does definitely, definitely help. So why Edinburgh? I imagine this is a lot of logistics to Oh, yeah, to it's, like, it's insane. Um, I think the reason we wanted to do it in Edinburgh, I mean, this show now has been uh, my partner, uh, the, the composer, George Griggs, and I have been working on this piece for seven years, really. We were part of the ASCAP workshop under Stephen Schwartz, and we've done also at uh, the BMI uh, Learman workshop. And um, it's a piece that we've been working on on and off, because I've had a couple other things that we've moved, but this is the one we've been sort of our most commercial piece, and sort of we've been like nurturing, and then um, the opportunity arose. Um, and we started thinking, hey, what the heck? And then we started doing the thing with the Edinburgh, and then I found out about the 59th Street, the East of Edinburgh thing, and, it's, and I'm like thrilled to be able to do it in New York too. Um, and so, you know, I figured it's a big stage, and it's just it's a sense of just putting the show out there and seeing what we got. I mean, I think anytime you're working on a new show, you're always trying to find out. I mean, you know, what it is, and, and does it have any life? So, what logistics are all involved with? taking the show over there like Jesus, <laughs> Jesus and said what are you oh you my do? god like the big thing is, is you just to pack in a van and no, head across no, the man. it's like insane because the things that we're talking about this is like uh, our designers they have to design everything that's going to fit in a suitcase our set literally fits in a suitcase no lie man and then it's also like figuring we had to rent mics over there um the logistics of booking a theater and and dealing with all the the things that go on in Edinburgh and getting the publicity set uh, figuring out how the cast is getting there. Um, well, and the, and the cat part of the rules is the cast has to oh, yeah, set can, changes and stuff. Yeah, the, the, changes. We have an hour and a half show. So the show's actually longer than what we're doing, but we have an hour and a half to basically get the show done, and then we have 15 minutes to set up, get audience in, and 15 minutes to get everybody out and get everything stripped down to zero again. So it is like... Mad scramble cast. Everybody's got to like work to get everything done and set and happen. So there's kind of like I mean there's a manic energy and a <laughs> desperation that goes along with this because you're on like a timeline, man. You really got to get it going. So it's kind of cool because it lends itself to what we're doing. So how many of you are flying over there? Uh, the whole, I think there's fifth, sixteen. Wow, sixteen uh, with <laughs> with the cast and myself, and I have like an assistant, and I have uh, the composers going, the director, and our, and our TD. You know, so it's like a, you know, it's a pretty cool group. I mean, like I so said, we're all real excited. We all have T-shirts. Yeah. Like Craig's wearing our T-shirts, so we have T-shirts, and uh, we're going over there. And the prospect is, you know, you got to sell your show and market your show, and um, we're we're involved heavily in all the stuff that's going on. We'll be doing stuff on High Street as well as performing in the theater and uh, booked on TV shows and doing stuff like this, which is great. Um, and uh, just trying to get our exposure for the piece and and get people to come and see it. 
All right. Well, before we get to all the dates and stuff, uh, you guys want to perform one more song here for us? I'd love Let's to. do it. Okay, Let's you want to set it up. All right, all right. This one is um, this one's called The Best Night of Your Life. It's, uh, well, my character Rory is... Um, He's <laughs> just lost his Beatles ticket. Um, they've given it to someone else. And, uh, and so I've been uh, hitting the booze a little bit. Um, and now I'm going to the same, girl that I, the same girl that I was singing about earlier. I'm going to her house and uh, wrote her a little song that I want to serenade outside of her window at about 2 o'clock in the morning. And um, yeah, it's called The Best Night of Your Life. Before I watch you slip through my hands may lightning strike down this fool where he stands i wanted this this night to be only the best night of your life go on and leave me tear me apart just put the blame on this fool and his heart i wanted this this night to be only the best night of your life i just wanna be your everything to make your dreams come true so i must admit i did this all for you One more thing, girl, that needs to be said I'd never hurt you, I'd rather be dead I wanted this This night to be Only the best Night of your life yeah, 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 yeah. We got two sets of dates to put out really quickly. Yes, 59 East 59th Street Theater, uh, starting July 20th through the 29th at 7 p.m. Uh, and then we are flying to Edinburgh, and we are starting on August 4th through August 11th at Understairs at Apostolic. And over in Edinburgh, the tickets can be gotten by uh, going to... Uh, www.edfringe.com because uh, you can buy it right from the Fringe directly. I think you can find tickets too on the 59 East yeah, 59th Street website. So it's 59east59.org. Right. Right. Austin and Paul, I thank you so much for coming down and, and playing and talking with us. And also thanks to Craig for coming in and singing with you guys too. All right. Thank you thank very you, much, Mike. It's great having us here. Thanks. Okay. All right. Top of the trades. First up on the news, the Drama Disc winners actually. Receive their trophies. Uh, they won the prize, so somebody figured, hey, maybe they can get the trophies, too. The winners of the 2006-2007 Drama Desk Awards, which were presented May 20th, well, I guess just the award was given, uh, received their engraved trophies on July 17th at a cocktail reception at Tony DiNapoli's restaurant. In a previous statement, Robert R. Bloom, executive producer of the Drama Desk Awards, said, quote, This will be the second time we have scheduled a cocktail reception to distribute the trophies at Tony's DiNapoli. Last year's event was so successful that both DiNapoli's manager, Bruce, and I decided to do it again. Hopefully the winners who are still in New York City will attend the event on July 17th to pick up their trophies. Quote, he added, off the record, 
hey, they're just theater people. Let's drag them around wherever we can. You know what? We're not even giving them the awards this time. We're going to come up with a third award and give it to them then. <laughs> okay. Also, the Legally Blonde CD was released with a signing at Virgin Records. Throngs of people swarmed the store, mainly because there was like a famous act in the MTV studios across the street. Anyway. <laughs> also, Love Music has been recorded. Ghostlight Records, a division of Shikaboom Records, we all know and love them, will release, quote, the world premiere recording. Unquote, of the Manhattan Theatre Club's production of Love Music, which recently completed its run at MTC's Biltmore Theatre. So the question we're all wondering is, will we be able to understand the dialect for the lyrics on CD? We couldn't in the theatre. We'll find out. Top of the Trades is brought to you by BroadwayWorld.com. For the best theater news, most up-to-the-date, and theater community, visit BroadwayWorld.com. And tune in every week to Broadway Bullet for the best industry news in Top of the Trades. Curtain Call. Well, a couple things are going to be leaving us. Beauty and the Beast and Grey Gardens are in their final two weeks of their run, so... Get tickets now. Catch them now. And remember, uh, our season two premiere, you know, back at episode volume 101, we got those three exclusive tracks from Grey Garden, so be sure to check that out. And also, uh, I'm going to let everybody know, because I'm sure nobody has heard, nobody has their calendar marks. In fact, it could have slipped by completely unnoticed. So, Hairspray, the movie, it's out. It's coming out tomorrow, July 20th. Um, there's a couple people you might have heard of if you're, like, really into indie films. Um, a guy named John Travolta, uh, you know, Brittany Snow. They got some newcomer for the lead. Uh, there's some, like, teen stars in it that were in a couple little, like, small things. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? It's huge. Everybody's heard about it. Go see it. Get on their boards. Talk about it. <laughs> Let's all find out if everybody likes it. All right, well, it's good being back. Uh, we're going to have a lot more great stuff for you next week. we got a couple exciting surprises, I think, coming up in the next couple weeks. So uh, keep tuning in. Subscribe. You know, i, I got to say, a lot of people don't know. It's easy. You can make sure you do not miss an episode just by on the front page of BroadwayBullet.com. There's a button that says Add to iTunes. You hit that. It takes you to the iTunes page. You subscribe. It's free. Every week, it'll automatically download it when you turn on iTunes. If you have an iPod, it'll automatically put it on your iPod. If you've got an iPod, there's, like, chapters. You can move back and forth. You see pictures change with each song and stuff. So, yeah, get on board there. Anyway, let's wrap up. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. Actually, the barfait thing comes from my whole life. People just going vulture, boggler. So it didn't take much, though, when he uh, proposed. I said yes. It's fun to know that those lines will stay in the show when other actors do it in the future. The hairs went up on the back of my neck. It was a thrilling moment.
things with the audience and explore them a little bit. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc., to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.